Good morning. Good to see each of you. I'm going to help out our, the generation that precedes me. Some of you are thinking maybe of a song from Ecclesiastes 3, and you can't quite place it. Some think it's the Beatles or Simon and Garfunkel. It's actually the birds. That has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon, except I don't want you distracted by who was that that sang that song. Okay, so that's it was the birds. You don't have to YouTube that or anything. I'm not recommending that song. It's just a very popular song from the 1800s, was that? Um, Probably the 1960s. (laughs) So if you would take your scriptures and open them to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. The second section that we're about to look at actually goes from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 5. We are not going to get that far. We're going to look at the second section in two sermons because really of the nature of what the teacher, Kohelet, is dealing with. He's dealing with some very deep and sensitive issues. And we don't want to hurry through that section, though we're still doing a pretty broad overview. There is a term that explains the tension we face when we confront the problem of evil in the world. Deviations from what we believe is true of the character of God, yet our experiences seem to challenge what we know to be true about God. The term is theodicy. In a question, theodicy sounds like this, though it can take many forms. If God is just, holy, good, kind, and all-powerful, then how and why Does evil and suffering exist? That's theodicy. History's most famous statement of the problem of evil comes from the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus, where he asks a series of questions. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? It's a searching series of questions. In 1981, Rabbi Harold Kushner, a prominent American rabbi who aligns with the conservative, progressive wing of Judaism, authored a book, When Good Things Happen, or When Bad Things Happen to Good People. The title itself provokes the question of theodicy and theology. Rabbi Kushner wrote this book following the death of his son Aaron, who died as a young teenager from the premature aging disease progeria. Aaron died in 1977. The book was published in 1981. Rabbi Kushner said this, it it just seems so terribly unfair and it forced me to reconsider everything I'd been taught in seminary about God's role in the world. It was shattering. And folks, if we live life long enough, you will have those experiences too. He said that if he had to face the fact that God was either all-powerful but not kind, or thoroughly kind and loving but not totally powerful, he would rather compromise God's power and affirm his love. 
He writes, quote, Is there an answer to the question of why bad things happen to good people? The response would be, and listen to where he lands, because he posited a false choice and forces himself to choose within this false dichotomy, listen to the theology that comes out. The response would be to forgive the world for not being perfect and to forgive God for not making a better world. That is a strong charge against God. I understand it comes from a father who is suffering, but it is a strong charge against God. It is a belief system that forces a false choice rather than fear God and trust Him humbly and willingly through life's most difficult experiences. Rabbi Kushner allowed the storm winds of theodicy to slam his ship up against the rocks of skepticism. The Apostle Paul warned in 1 Timothy 1.19, holding faith, grasping, keeping a tight hold, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. We're looking at the second section of Ecclesiastes. You know, we went through, Matt read for us, a very familiar part, maybe one of the most familiar parts of this book, There is a time for this and a time for that and a time for this and a time for that. But as we reach through chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, this is what this section teaches us. God has a plan that includes every person and every action at all times of life. God has a plan that includes every person and every action at all times of life. So last week's sermon, as we got into chapters 1 and 2, the title of that sermon, because I believe it's the big idea of that section, is enjoy life as a gift of God. And sometimes we need permission to do that. We need permission today to enjoy the food we eat at lunch. To enjoy one another's company. To enjoy a guilt-free nap. We need permission to enjoy Life as a gift from God. But this morning's sermon is this. Because now we're going to confront the darker experiences of life. God has a plan that includes every person and every action at all times of life. Therefore, I've entitled this, Reverently Accept God's All-Inclusive Plan. Trying to word the titles of the sermon as actions. Enjoy life. Today, reverently accept God's all-inclusive plan. The teacher uses a poem to teach that every action can be traced to an ultimate source. God is the sovereign over seasons. Look at verse 1. We're not going to read this entire section again, but I want you to see that He is the sovereign over seasons. For everything, there is a season and a time For every matter under heaven. All inclusive. Do you see those words? Everything. Every matter. The times are in the hands of the one who created time. The timeless one is sovereign over the times of your life. He includes so many different examples. As a matter of fact, he uses 14 pairs of opposites. There is a time to mourn and what? There is a time to dance. Those are opposites. 
There is a time to weep. And you'll have plenty of those times in your life. And there's also a time to what? Laugh. Fourteen pairs of opposites. Twenty-eight times he uses the word time. And in this group this morning, we are all at different kinds of times in our life. We are not in the same times, if you would. Someone's reality on this pew may be different than somebody's experience back on that pew. And somebody up here may have just come through a season of laughing and somebody over here is going through a season of mourning and grieving. But for everything, there is a time. See, despite the seeming haphazard and arbitrary ups and downs of life, life does not unfold by chance or by fate. God is in charge of nature and history, boundaries, seasons, times. Which means this, if, if we really believe this, there are no rogue nations. They are tethered by a divine rope because God is the sovereign of everything. And the fact that everything is orchestrated by God reinforces these two dual truths, God's sovereignty and man's accountability. We're going to see that. That's going to be the answer that the teacher gives to some of the anomalies of life. As the psalmist said in Psalm 31, verse 15, my times are in your hand. It's what Job says, the Lord gives and what? The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Look at verse 11. I mean, when you come through that, a time for this, a time for that, and you realize that God appoints your birthday and your death day and every day in between those markers, verse 11 serves as an anchor. He has made everything beautiful in its what? Time. But we long for and seek how the worst of times makes sense, don't we? We long for and seek how evil makes sense in God's economy. How does that fulfill His purpose? So that confronts us with this reality. We will face times we do not understand. We will face times we do not desire. We will face times we cannot explain. And we will face times of mourning and weeping. During these times, go back to the title or the big idea of this section, reverently submit to, reverently accept God's all-inclusive plan why? Because His plan includes every person and every action at all times of life. So if this is true, if it's true that God has made everything beautiful in its time, won't we be tempted, especially as reasoning adults, won't we be tempted to doubt that truth when the seeming contradictions of life slap us in the face? And aren't you thankful that the teacher on this path of enjoying life presents six different case studies on how these anomalies threaten to challenge those truths? That's exactly what he launches into in verse 16. So look at verse 16. I'll read it in just a second. An anomaly is something that deviates from what is standard, normal, or accepted. The subject remains as he's moving through these six sort of seeming contradictions that all times are in God's hands. And so the teacher is going to say, but what happens when you experience this kind of time? 
What happens when you enter this season and that season goes on longer than you expected it? What happens when you did everything you could to control that situation and try to protect your loved ones and evil found a way in? Will you then let your ship run upon the rocks of cynicism and skepticism and practical atheism? So the subject remains the same. Look at the first observable anomaly. It's injustice. I mean, if anything cries out that there is not a good God or a just God or an all-powerful God, it has to be injustice. Look at verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. The idea of place seems to refer to specific places where you would expect to find justice, right? Leadership, courtrooms, churches. It's not only in the place as substitution, but a place where you should expect to find justice and you don't. There is no righteousness, no judicial relief where you would expect to find it. There were decisions made this past week that only galvanized this charge. Where we expect to find justice in the law, we find the murdering of the unborn made easier. Where those without a voice should expect to find justice, in New York they find none. And see, and we would get that, but, but soon we shift gears and we're like, yes, that's wrong. There's something innate in us because we image God where we say that's unjust. That's wrong. And then we turn from the horizontal problem of evil to who? And we start asking the questions of theodicy. God, if you're all powerful, if you're all loving, if you're kind, and you could prevent this, then why not? And since you didn't, then th- you mean you just fill in the blank. Then therefore, dot, dot, dot. So in my heart, I'm a practical atheist, but I'm still going to gather in a church because I don't want to offend my family or because that's just what good people do. Or do you see the danger of theological drift when we don't start tethering ourselves to the Word of God? This is the same injustice that fuels slavery and racism. Where we value one individual, the mother, more than another individual, the child. And folks, just because something is legal doesn't make it right. Jesus told the religious leaders, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And the teacher, Kohelet, comes to this conclusion. Here's his answer to this anomaly. Look at verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a what? You see, it's the same subject. There is a time for every matter and every work. So with this anomaly that faces us and threatens to undo the foundations of our faith, know this, God is not any, letting anybody get a by, by with evil. 
people will give an account to God. But you, but the time, if you would, in keeping with the theme, the time for universal judgment is not today. But it will be one day. Look at the second observable anomaly. Death comes to everyone. Look at verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them or God is exposing a truth to them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. In the middle of verse 19, he says, <coughs> excuse me, as one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all his vanity. This is what people are observing under the sun. This is what they are seeing. This is what they are beholding. So in light of the lack of injustice in the first anomaly, the teacher makes the point that death catches up with everyone. Derek Kidner wrote that verse 20 shows us, quote, this shows us man on his journey from dust to dust. There's a time to be born and a time to die. As in Genesis 3.19, he continues to write, it confronts us with the fall. And with the irony that we die like cattle because we fancied ourselves in Genesis 3 as gods. Here's his answer. Verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? It's kind of returning to the theme of the first section. Enjoy life as a gift from God but be ready to give an account. Look at the third anomaly. This begins in chapter 4, verse 1. There's really no break here. His argument continues. And this anomaly is this, that people are oppressed with no comfort. I think one of evil's most hideous forms is cruelty. Look at verse 1, the third complaint. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And now he's returning back to the oppressed. And there was no one to comfort them. You know, it is difficult to live with joy, as we've been instructed, without the knowledge that someone actually cares. You know, there's a real danger to the oppressed, not necessarily in the hideous oppression but in the fact that there was no one to visit and care. Look at his answer in verse 2. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. I love how God's Word doesn't deny the problem of evil, but actually exposes it and speaks truth into it and actually answers in some ways that we would answer. Keep in mind, this is a single perspective. This is his answer under the sun. We're going to get to above the sun later, but this is his answer that those people are better off than we are. I'm going to jump to sort of two gospel threads because this is so heavy. Because I, I want to at least remind if there's even a, a solitary person here this morning that feels all alone and that nobody cares, that is a satanic lie. Jesus says that the hired hand flees because he cares nothing for the sheep. 
And the contrast is then he says that he is a good shepherd, that he cares, that he loves, that he will pursue one lost sheep. Peter said you can cast all your anxieties on him, on God, because he cares for you. And I think we need to remind ourselves of that truth and we need to remind one another of that truth. And sometimes we need to be the hands and the feet and the voice of Jesus to show Christ to others that we care. That will rarely be convenient or comfortable and and it will probably not fit on your schedule in a very clean and neat way. But the oppressed aren't just out there. There are some that are oppressed in here and on your street and in this community. Here's the fourth observable anomaly. People are envious, right? Do we we really need an argument for that? I mean, we're those people in some ways. Look at verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is what he's saying. This is he's observing life under the sun, and he's saying, you know, those that work the hardest and the most seem to be doing so to outdo others. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What he is saying is that much of our overwork is either to outdo or at least not be outdone. And his point is this, busyness is pointless. And busyness and jealous rivalry often go hand in hand, fueled by success to be considered something. Here's his answer. I love how he's answering these. Look at verse 6. I mean, what is the answer to the vanity of pointless busyness and jealous rivalry? Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. So instead of competitiveness and workaholism, the teacher suggests moderation. There's two Proverbs that echo the same thing. Proverbs 15 verse 16 states, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is a common theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Proverbs 16.8 says, Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Now often when people are together, they're envious. Let me ask you, would that be true of this group? Is it possible that when, when we're together as a group, there can be envy? Absolutely. Though there's a problem when people are together, there's another problem that the teacher addresses, and he, it's the poverty of the loner, as Derek Kidner says. Look at the fifth observable anomaly. People are isolated. So when people are together, there's sin, and now people are isolated, and that poses another problem. Look at verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So, so look at, sort of look at this string of themes. Previously, we had seen there was no comforter for the oppressed. Then we saw there was no rest in verses 4 to 6. And now there is no companion. We don't even need to explain that, but look at his answer in verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up 
his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And what he's trying to say this is there is danger in a group when your when your motives are, are fueled by envy and there's danger in being alone. There is joy in sharing life together. Do you know that the church, and again, we always, we always try to chip away at a false view of the church. Many people look at the church as they would um, their doctor's office or their dentist's office or even a Walmart. You know, the church is not a service provider. Yeah, there are services that need to be done, but it's not primarily a service provider. It is a community Ecclesia, the word for church, we are called out and gathered together for a common purpose. People often seem to get more, more frustrated when the services and the structures aren't functioning the way they would like to see them function, but rarely do they mind those standing alone, marginalized, without anyone to connect with, even here. Those who enter into life with one another, braving the risks of vulnerability and transparency in community, actually are the ones who know the joys of sharing life together. Those who love sacrificially, again, will find it's not convenient, but they will find it's rewarding. What better community? I mean, that would be so sad if, if this portion of Ecclesiastes could be said about anybody that we come into contact with. Because what better community than a church who chooses to practice this? Loving one another. Being at peace with one another. Accepting one another. Yes, that means you're going to have to accept people that aren't like you. And sometimes accept people that don't like you. Putting up with one another. I am so glad that command is in the Scripture. Because you're going to have to practice that with me at times. Right When my dad humor comes out, and you're just going to have to be like, okay, we put up with him because we love him. Seeking the good of one another. Forgiving one another. Which means what? We are not perfect people gathering together to try to make a perfect community. We are imperfect people gathering together to make an imperfect community for the glory of God. So we need to forgive one another because when we gather, we're going to offend one another. We're going to irritate one another. We're going to say things we shouldn't have said. We're going to talk to somebody else about something when we should have come directly to that person first. And we're going to have to say, brother, in Christ's name, I forgive you. There's a final observable anomaly. It begins in verse 13. And that is this. Popularity and success are temporary. And, and this time, the teacher provides the answer first to this seeming contradiction of life. Look at verse 13. Here's the answer. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who, knew, who no longer knew how to take advice. That may be a personal testimony from the teacher. Here's the anomaly. Look at verse 14. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, of all whom he led. 
Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Right. Today's hero is tomorrow's loser, if you would. Popularity, it's like the air. It's like the temporariness that Ecclesiastes said. It's vanity. It blows like a mist. Surely he even says this. Surely this also is vanity and is striving after wind. See, all six anomalies, these charges, are charges against God's rule, against the fickleness of life, the constant ups and downs, the sudden shifts, the reversals. And they become excuses for rejecting God's rule rather than accepting his lordship. We must be careful not to let any of these six anomalies or ones that we could add to it. I mean, honestly, folks, we could add to this section in Ecclesiastes in detail with pain and hurt. We need to be careful we don't use these anomalies as excuses to reject God. Psalm 14, verse 1 says this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So how do we respond? Chapter 5 will lay out for us a course of action, but for, for us this morning, I want to close, which doesn't mean there's only a minute left, but I want to close by looking at the bookends of this section because he begins with something and he ends with something and in between are the six anomalies. Well, there's a time for everything, the six anomalies, and then a way forward, but there are these two bookends. So go back to Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. In a, in, a, in a portion of the text we did not look at, this is sort of that first bookend after the poem. We looked at one of these verses, but not the entire section. Chapter 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. You cannot, you will not find answers for everything that's happening in your times. There's a point sometimes where we simply bow before God and we submit to a good and gracious God who is all powerful and all good, who has an all inclusive plan. Eternity in our hearts is an interesting statement. There is something, even in the delights of this world, when our times are laughing and dancing, there's still something in our hearts that desires something better in duration and quality. We search for something more than what exists under the sun. Why do we do that? Because the because God has put eternity in our heart. Look at verse 12. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And that sounds a lot like what? Section 1. Also, verse 13, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. You know, there's an inseparable connection between Joy and doing good. Taking pleasure, he, t- he talks about here in verse 13, as a gift to man. Not just a fleeting pleasure, but to find lasting pleasure in something is God's gift. Look at verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. See, that's, and that matches eternity in our heart. We want that. We want what we do today to last forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. It's interesting. So that, why? 
And this seems counterintuitive, so that we fear Him. But the idea of fear in the Bible, yes, it begins with a dread, but it moves to an affectionate relational reverence. I was talking with one of my boys as we were driving in the truck, and we were talking about a situation. And then, you know, I looked over and in love sort of threatened him, like, you know, well, if you did anything like that, you know, I'd come down hard. And he looks back at me with the same sort of joking tone, and he goes, it's a good thing I respect you. And he means it. That's that affectionate, relational reverence. Fear of God is not just, oh, oh, he's going to crush us. He's the divine policeman just waiting for me to break a law, and he's going to crush You know, he already would have done that. Now, whom he loves, he chastens, he corrects. But that fear is the basis of a father-to-child relationship. That's what makes that relationship healthy. That's what makes that relationship enjoyable. Why is God doing all these things? Why does He do things that we don't even know why He's doing it? You can't find out, the Scriptures say, because He wants you to trust Him as a father. See, there are things you as a parent know about your two-year-old child that that two-year-old child does not know yet. He does not know that he shouldn't run up to a stranger's Rottweiler and grab for its face. He doesn't know that. He just sees something big and black and cuddly. And, and you know the breed. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why did you do that as a father? And, and the child pulls against you because he wants to go pet this beautiful dog. Because you know the nature of the dog and what could happen. Now, reverse that situation. You're in life and you're sort of this perpetual two-year-old in God's perspective. And He's keeping you from things that you want to chase after. But God knows that that will not be healthy for you. And because He cares, because He loves you, He restrains you. He does these things so that you will fear. And, and it's sort of the preposition here before, if you see that, you fear before God places you near Him in a sense. It's not the distant stranger, the dread, the fear, the terror. It's you have a relationship with Him and you fear before Him just as a child does a father who loves Him. There's another part to this. And that is, that God's ways will always remain foreign and frustrating until you know Him personally. That doesn't mean you will know all His ways. But there's a sense where it's enough because you know who He is and you love Him that you'll bow your knee to Him. Look at verse 15. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. I mean, this Here's the point the teacher seems to be making. We can trust a timeless God with the times of our lives because He is perfectly just. I had said earlier, God is not letting anyone get away with evil. How do we know that? God seeks what has been driven away. What is history to you? What is in the past? What seems forgotten? People thousands of years ago who seem to have gotten away with it haven't. The images of a shepherd who goes and he seeks for a lost sheep that has gone wayward. And in this case, it's history and the actions and the words of men, including their oppression and their cruelty. And he seeks it and he drives it back. 
Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 2, verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Romans 14, verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, because that's true. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. So if what God does endures forever and he is sovereign, how do we respond to those apparent contradictions, these anomalies. And now look at the other bookend. We haven't been here yet, but look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. This is the conclusion. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 18. This this brings us to the end of the second section, even though we're going to go back next week and look at chapter 5. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. Let me ask you, is that, is that a theme now? We have we seen this before several times? In all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, the few days of this time, but there's something in our hearts that knows there's a time that endures forever. For this is his lot. Look at verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Do not separate the gift from the giver. True joy, true blessing come from him. Even the ability to enjoy something like this. Verse 20. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Interesting phrase. Okay, 27 things about this. No, just kidding. Just a few things about this text. God, God's plan, God's all-inclusive plan is declared to be what in verse 18? I have seen it to be what? Good. You say it doesn't feel good right now. It is good because it comes from the hand of a good God. James says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation of shadow due to change. God's gifts are holy. Receive them as such. God's gifts are good. Receive them as such. God's gifts are without guilt and shame. Secondly, God's plan is also declared to be fitting. In verse 18. That is, his plan is appropriate and it will be beautiful in its time. You say, I don't see any aesthetic quality in what I'm going through right now. Wait on the Lord. Wait on him. Third, enjoyment in God is the principal end to be sought. You know that neither the plan of God nor, we'll say, true religion was ever meant to stifle our joy and pleasure in God. And yet, how often has religion done that? 1 Timothy 4, the Apostle Paul warns, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. 
through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Remember earlier on, he said, hold faith and a good conscience so that you don't shipwreck. Now he says there's a group of people who pass themselves off, but they're liars and their consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. You see, the New Testament supports the Old Testament's teaching. Verse 20, God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. God keeps one occupied. That is, people are kept occupied and delighted in their heart with God himself and by God himself. We we keep seeing that. To enjoy this is a gift from God. To enjoy this is a gift from God. Jesus said this. This is his offer. Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, which sounds like Ecclesiastes, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In John 10.10, he says this, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Listen to what Jesus says. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is section two. It addresses the theodicy that exists within our own heart. Let me ask you a few questions and then we're going to sing a hymn of response. What things do you seek to control that are really out of your hands? And what might that look like if you surrendered that control to an all-powerful and all-good God? Secondly, there is a time for judgment, for giving an account to God. What difference could that truth make to the frustrations you have, even the theodicy that rages in your own heart, in your life today? That God is going to bring everyone back together and they will give an account. That's actually an assurance to believers, a comfort to believers. Are you letting the thief of envy rob you of joy? Envy reveals itself through criticalness, sour judgmentalism, and evil speaking. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. My final question this morning, based on the fact that death is the great equalizer, do you live in fear of death or does the reality of death help you live better? I love Jesus' question to Martha in John 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks Martha this, do you believe this? And folks, do you believe Jesus' words? Though you die, you will live forever with him. Let's pray.